Welcome to the Berkey Web Today podcast, part of the Eero Podcast Network. Podcasts that inform by focusing on the news and the people behind the news. My name is Edward Eero, and I am your host for Episode 2. Berkey Web Today provides coverage before, during, and after the American Berkebiner Ski Race in northern Wisconsin. The podcast is a new feature of Berkey Web, where Berkey buddies Tim Burke, Mike Tarnow, and I explore news and information about the race, which includes in-depth interviews with the people behind the news. Berkey Web Today podcast can be found at the Berkey Web website at www.berkeyweb.com. They are also indexed at the Eero Podcast Network at epn.ero.com. Today's guest is John Kotar, one of the American Berkebinder founders and also the president of the Birch Leggings Club. Before I introduce John, here is some recent news about the Berkey. It is Friday, February 6th, so that means that there are only 15 days to race day. Registration information is on the Berkey website at berkey.com. Through February 13th, registration is $100 and then goes up to $120 through February 20th. Remember, there is no on-site registration on the day of the race, February 21st. The wave change deadline is midnight, Monday, February 9th, 2009. Qualifying race information must accompany each request which includes the race name, distance, year, and finish time. A complete list of all the qualifying races and criteria is on the Berkey website. The classic skate designation change deadline is also midnight, Monday, February 9th, 2009. The third annual American Berkebinder team competition has been expanded for Berkey 2009. The team competition is intended to be a fun addition to the race and is also being presented by the American Berkebiner Ski Foundation and the Lake Superior College in Duluth. For 2009, the team competition has been expanded to include an open category for organizations like businesses and clubs regardless of age. The minimum number on a team is three with no upper limit. All team members must be signed up for the same race with at least one skate skier and one classic skier, and at least one member from each gender. Hurry, however, the deadline for team captains to submit completed team applications forms is Monday, February 9th, so a key date. More information can also be found about the team competition on the Berkey website. All skiers participating in the Berkey Skiers for Cures program, which will be benefiting MS, will receive the commemorative 2009 pin to wear on their race bibs in recognition of their fundraising efforts. The pin, designed by K. Lum Design, is also available to those making a donation of $25 or more. Anyone raising $2,500 or more is guaranteed to meet, ski, have lunch, and have their photo taken with Norwegian Olympian Bjorn Dali. 20 spots are available for this opportunity. Bjorn will also be at the Fisher booth at Telemark on Friday, February 20th from 12 to 1 p.m., where he will be signing a special poster. His Fisher race skis are being raffled 
with tickets being sold at the booth. Well, this weekend is the pre-Berkey, the Hayward Lions 2009 pre-Berkey. Information for that race, uh, and listen here, is www.haywardlakes.com slash Lions pre-Berkey. Or you can call 715-634-6456. The pre-Berkey schedule of events is later this afternoon, Friday, February 6th, uh, from 4.30 to 9, there'll be the Carbo Load Spaghetti Feed Dinner at the Moose Lodge on Beale Avenue in Hayward. Registration and bib pickup is also available uh, at the lodge um, through dinner and then up to 9.30 p.m. Tomorrow, Saturday, February 7th, um, from 7 to 9.30 a.m., there's light registration and bib pickup again at the Moose Lodge where you can also enjoy breakfast from 7 to 9 a.m. The race start is at 10 o'clock a.m. on Lake Hayward. And then at 3 p.m. is the awards ceremony at Moose Lodge. This year, the pre-Berkey is offering a 42K event that will be a qualifying race for the Berkey. As in past years, the 26K event is a qualifier for the Cordelopet. Remember, while at the Berkey website, sign up for the Carp Diem newsletter, where up-to-date information is sent directly to you via email. A new email was sent on Wednesday, February 4th, with new information. By way of general introduction to the Berkey Web Today podcast, Tim, Mike, and I have been participating in the American Berkebiner Ski Race since 1986. Tim and I are now in the Birch Leggings Club, which means that we have skied 20-plus races. I also serve as the webmaster of the Birch Leggings website, which can be found at www.birchleggings.com. Please visit the site and tell any Birch Leggers that you know to also stop by. The Berkey website has been up for 11 years now and is filled with lots of information and tips about the Berkey. If you have a Facebook or Twitter account, please sign up for the Berkey Web group on Facebook and to sign up to follow Berkey Web on Twitter. Updates will be posted on both of these sites in addition to Berkey Web. In fact, a new Twitter feed is on the main page of the website, so even if, even if you don't have a Twitter account, you can see all the news and information posts. Our guest today is John Coder who besides participating in every American Berkebiner ski race since 1973 and a Berkey founder, is the organizer and president of the Birch Leggings Club. John is a retired professor in forest ecology and management at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and is among only three skiers, including Ernie St. Germain and Dave Landgraf, who have skied every race since its inception. While they never intended to be one of the handful of skiers to complete all 36 Berkey binders, they now all represent the true spirit of the Berkey community. John was born and raised in Slovenia, the former Yugoslavia. He serves on the American Berkey Binder Ski Foundation Board of Directors, is the past president of the United States Ski Association Master's Division, is a member of the Board of Directors for the Society of American Foresters, and is a member of the Wisconsin Forest History Association Board. He is the author of several books on forest classification in Lake States, and is the owner of Terra Silva Forest Ecology and Management, where he does consulting and research work. 
John resides in Eau Claire, Wisconsin with his wife Nina and their 11-year-old daughter Katie. Nina has also completed 18 Birka binders, so will be soon uh, becoming a birch legger herself, and Katie has so far participated in the Barna Berkey, and I'm sure we'll be moving up to the Berkey as soon as she is old enough to do so. John came from to the U.S. from Slovenia in 1956 after graduating from high school. He attended college at Wisconsin Stevens Point, where he received a bachelor's degree in conservation and biology. His master's degree is from the University of Minnesota Twin Cities campus in forestry, and his doctorate from the University of Washington in Seattle on forest ecology. John, welcome. Hello, Ed. John, why did you come to the U.S., and uh, when you did, did you first settle in Wisconsin when you moved, uh, and had you planned on staying in the United States? Yes, this is, uh, I'll give you a very quick answer to a very long possible answer. <laughs> As a result of World War II, of course, uh, Yugoslavia became under, it fell under communist rule. Uh, mm-hmm. Many people remember the name, was a dictator there for many years. Well, in 45, uh, my father, who was uh, on the wrong side of political battle during the occupation, you know, in Yugoslavia during the German occupation, well, he escaped uh, to Austria first and eventually made it to the United States. And to make the long story short, he uh, resided in Milwaukee. He came there because he had relatives there. And once he became an American citizen, he became eligible, of course, to request or start the paper proceedings to get his family over out of the communist Yugoslavia, which was not easy to do in those days. But anyway, after 12 years of this kind of a proceedings and so forth, uh, the family managed to get here in 1956. So that's, And we, we uh, landed in Milwaukee uh, simply because... There was a chain, sort of a, a chain of relatives that uh, some arrived here way, way early, 1920s and before. And uh, usually that's what people do from small uh, towns, villages in other parts of the world. They tend to follow others. And so anyway, in short, that's how we landed in or wound up in Milwaukee. That's uh, wonderful. With the, um, how many of uh did you come over with other oh, yeah. family members? Well, uh, and a little more to this. Um as I say, the story can be long, but um, when we finally received our uh, visas uh, so uh, we could uh, leave Yugoslavia legally, my mother did not get hers yet. So I did, and all of the siblings, they were all younger. I was 17, and they were younger down the line, my uh, three sisters and a brother. Well, I had to make a quick decision because within a year, I would have been 18, and of course, I would have been drafted to the army, and my father's uh, sort of legal authority, or how should I say, uh, jurisdiction over me would have expired, and I would have been stuck in Yugoslavia, so perhaps forever. (laughs) So I made a quick decision, I'm leaving, and uh, well, reluctantly, two of my sisters decided also to leave home. They went with me, and the three of us traveled, uh, and we were the first to arrive uh, in in the United States, in Milwaukee specifically. And my mother and the other two siblings eventually made it two years later. So that's how we got here. Wow, that's quite a story. So that that goes over twelve years. Then? Ten, yes. Wow. Yeah. 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 For for my for my mom and the two youngest siblings, uh, it went over to uh, yeah. That was twelve years and uh, ten years for me. 
And that must have been so difficult with your family to, you know, communicate, you know, these you days. You can kind of imagine. Yeah, internet and everything imagine. else, right. Yeah. Well, um, you've been a professor at the um, University of Minnesota in Duluth, at Michigan Tech, and um, at the University of Wisconsin. Uh, did you teach and do research in the same department or area at, e at each university? Well, the departments, of course, d differ somewhat at um uh, UMD, University of Minnesota, Duluth, I was in biology department. I was teaching plant sciences. They don't have a forestry program then. Uh, as I moved to Michigan Tech, uh, there, of course, I joined the forestry department, and I was teaching regular forest ecology and some other related courses. Eventually wound up in Madison um, uh, in the forestry department there as well, primarily 90% in a research role. I was involved in developing this forest uh, ecological forest classification system, referred to broadly as habitat type classification by people in the trade. And uh, I was there for almost 20 years, um, retired in, uh, what, four years ago. And I am still working. Uh, I have grants from DNR, and I'm still working uh, pretty much uh, on uh, the kind of work I was doing before. There are parts of it unfinished, uh, and I still have contracts for, for is, several is, years. John, is that what Terra Silva Forest Ecology and Management is doing? Then Ter you, you do yes, grant Terra work, Silva, research? Terra Silva Forest Ecology Management is what I go by. Uh, I work as a sole proprietor, but I, I give it a name, so this is the name that uh, I operate under. And uh, I have a partner in Madison. Uh, he worked for me when I was at the university as well. And every summer, I hire two, three, four college students, uh, forestry students, and they spend the summer uh, doing collecting data in the forests uh, that I need, which I later process and develop, of course, interpret and uh, work into the into the books that I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. so that is what I do. So, is it uh, is it tend to be full time, or does it uh, vary time of year? It is for me, of course. I work uh, at my own at my own schedule, uh, and during the and off season, you know, fall, winter, and so forth. It's primarily data analysis, writing, interpretation, those kinds of things. I work on my own, but during the summer, uh, I as I say, I hire these people. I train them. It takes a few days or a week uh, to train them just what they're going to be doing, and then they're on their own as well. And I simply uh, I do some overseeing from time to time and so forth. So summer goes by fast. Yeah, so you keep busy. It's nice that uh, your off season kind of matches up with uh, your love of skiing. I guess so. That's, that's it. Nice. Does I mean I, I I see to it. Of course, I would not want to be. I wouldn't want to retire and be so occupied with uh, the kind of work that I've always been doing that uh, I couldn't enjoy some of these other things. Of course. That's family all. life. I have a daughter, as you know, I mentioned Katie, of course. Uh, and she's been growing up. Uh, she's 11 now. Uh, we do all sorts of things. Uh, obviously, we ski a lot. Uh, we have a cabin up at Cable. We spend as much time as we can up there, uh, mostly skiing, but just relaxing around the place, too. So that's what we do. That's wonderful. Well, what was it like being a Berkey founder and and knowing Tony Wise? I mean, what can you... Tell us about that experience, you know, back in 73, some sure. of the history. Well, this is an interesting question I get asked very, very often. And, of course, you have to forget everything you know about Birkebeiner today. 
because at that time, of course, there was no Bertebein. There were no cross-country ski races that people were familiar with, certainly no 50-kilometer races. So the thing that Tony uh, wanted to grow, he learned this, of course, he saw this in Europe, mainly Vassal Opet in Sweden and the Norwegian Birkebeiner. And he got an idea that he should, that he could bring something like that to this country that would help basically the northern Wisconsin Hayward Cable area back on its feet after the war. It was economically depressed and so forth. So he, he thought that this was something that, that would work. Now, I, I will tell you, as I say, the first Birkebeiner, I mean, Tony had a hard time getting enough people to make, uh, to make a start. It turned out there were 35 of us after a substantial amount of advertising, but, you know, it didn't go very far. Not many people picked up on it. So anyway, I, it just, I think it's more happenstance than anything that I wound up being there. I was in Duluth. And at a, one of the ski shops, the word trickled down that there's such a race in Wisconsin. It just so happened, I was really interested in, in adventures of this sort. I just moved from, uh, from the University of Washington, you know, in Seattle, where you mentioned where we did a lot of alpine skiing, mountaineering, that kind of thing. And mountain touring was a thing that I was really into and I was familiar with. Here in, back in the Lake States, I was really missing mountains and a challenge uh, for that kind of a ski uh, activity. And cross-country skiing just at that time started coming around. And this 50-kilometer thing seemed like the kind of thing to do. I mean, it's a long distance. There are no really big hills, not mountains. But I thought I'd give this a shot. And it was basically through that that I followed up on the specifics and managed to find the place and actually wind up at the starting line uh, back in February. (laughs) That's quite a story. So was it similar with the other folks that found their way that? Each person would tell you a story, I think, that is quite funny in a way. Uh, The two that I, well, the ones, the founders that I um, know best, they they each had their own story. Now, Ernie St. Germain uh, from La Couture area, he was a native over there, and he was around Telemark a lot, so Tony knew him, or he knew Tony. He was a young lad. He's 10 years younger than I am. And somehow he got coaxed into this, and he would tell you his own story, if you ever talked mm-hmm. to him. Uh, Dave Landgraf, likewise, um, he was uh, just a high school student at the time, just graduated, I believe. And again, uh, kind of, they were skiing, but uh, they were not yet racers. Well, none of us. None of us was really a racer, but uh, we we picked up uh, the challenge nevertheless. We got to know Tony, of course. Uh, after the first event, I mean, Tony worked on this very hard. He would certainly he would write us personal letters after we completed the first race, inviting us back and trying to tell us uh, that what this will grow into. Because he had a dream, he had a plan. We didn't see any dream or our plan. We just saw, you know, 35 people, and the <laughs> next year, the next year, maybe 70, uh, taken off from the lake, uh, frozen lake uh, in Hayward, and skiing up to Hayward. I mean, to Cable. Um, but uh, Tony was right. Uh, each year, the numbers grew, and uh, of course, most of you now know know the rest. As we say, the rest is history. Yeah, and, and that's an important. Is when I've done some reading on the history, because people, when they flipped it to go from, um, you know, ending up in Hayward, they said that was the original way. But actually, the original way was starting 
in at Lake Hayward and Gore. Oh yes, yeah. The original, so, yeah. yeah. For several years, you, we would st- uh, we started on the lake at History Land down there, where the Lumberjack Festival um, and competitions are nowadays. Yeah, right in there. This is where we started. Right. And then it was reversed, and then it was reversed again. I lose track of it. It's been 35 years. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> I know we've gone both directions. Uh, and, of course, uh, the trail, the course, has been completely changed. What we ski today has really absolutely no resemblance uh, to what was there the first uh, perhaps three years, I believe. Because was there actually gro- – was it groomed the first year? I mean, was the, the first year was downright funny. You have to realize that – the way Tony went about it, obviously he wanted to connect Hayward with uh, Cable and have a race go point to point. That was the attraction, and was that was the attraction to all of us because it was quite a distance, even by car, it's quite a distance. Mm-hmm. He hired Sven Wick, uh, well known at that time, uh, Swedish uh, cross country promoter coach. He was, in fact, some years prior to that, uh, U.S. Olympic coach of the U.S. Uh, cross country Olympic team. Anyway, uh, Tony knew him and invited him over, and he had him find some ways, old logging roads, trails, whatnot, to kind of link it together so that you can get from Hayward to Cable. And that's what Sven did. As a result, uh, talk about grooming. Uh, that would, be a, would have been a joke. <laughs> uh, I know that we skied on the lake. There were tracks, and they simply pulled a little kind of a homemade sled that you pull behind a snowmobile. And once you ran out of snow uh, on the road, they, they ran it for a while right on top of the snow banks. I mean, along the highway, along Highway 63 up there or whatever highway, I don't really remember which one it was. Um, they really were just sort of token tracks. Um, but above all, what was happening is the trail changed many times. It would, it would follow some abandoned logging road, and then it would uh, change direction. And there would be maybe a couple of ribbons hanging there uh, as, a, as a marker. There were no signs, nothing written, no kilometers, <laughs> no foot stations, and no people. And since there were 35 of us, we were obviously scattered all over the place. Once we left the lake and um, we uh, got into the, the woods beyond Hayward, we never saw anybody. So it, so, it was, so it was truly a race. I mean, you weren't trying to ski together to stay together. Yeah. It was No, the objective yeah. was to get from here to there, and uh, it was a challenge. But it was all the distance. Yeah. The time, of course, mattered, but since you didn't see each other, whoever was fast was up ahead, whoever right. was further behind was behind, and there really was no racing. So, so you, had, you had to bring your own water and food for the whole race? We brought nothing. We were greenhorns. We knew nothing. Oh, jeez. We didn't have anything. Uh, we literally had nothing. We just skied. We didn't even have a fanny pack. So no cliff bars or... <laughs> no cliff. They didn't exist. <laughs> yes, right. This All this came later. Yeah. Uh, water bottles. Think about that. Uh, water bottles everybody carries nowadays, uh, whether you're skiing, running, biking, whatever. These things simply didn't exist. I just can't People Im- were not doing these things. Yeah, I can't imagine. Yeah, that's... Um, on the, since you're in, you know, in the forestry area, I, I've noticed that, you know, the Berkey Trail, I, at what year did they sort of keep it where they have kept it natural almost the whole way down? I mean, you see some logging in certain spots, but by and large, it's, uh, you know, very, very beautiful trail. 
Well, the trail, you have to think of it, when you say natural, of course, all that means that the trail runs primarily 90% of it uh, through the forest. So, and they, these are mainly county forests, Bayfield County and Sorta County forests. Right. These are working forests. So, in other words, uh, they, they log there regularly. They, they use, uh, follow forest management practices. So, from time to time, there's uh, a kind of logging that you see from the trail. Uh, sometimes there are even a small clear cut here and there. People have seen that. I know some people are upset with that, but of course, if you know something about forest management, uh, it certainly is nothing to be upset about. These are, if nothing else, these are regeneration cuts in the first place. So much of it was aspen, right. Right. which would not grow unless you remove it first. You know, it's a, it's a shade intolerant tree. It requires full sunlight to be regenerated. But in other places, oaks likewise re- require, you know, opening and thinning and so forth. And but besides, it's the counties that that's a county forest role. It uh, provides revenue for the county. Uh, so but they but they've made a, the, they've made a commitment though, John. To keep, I mean, close to the trail, they don't seem to log right into there. I mean, you, I know oh, in certain spots, you, you, you well, see it where they are, but like right next to the trail, it's... Absolutely right. Yeah. Well, we worked closely with the county forestry oh. departments over the years, and I was actually involved in that myself uh, right. quite a lot, being a forester, to work to come up with a plan and a policy. We have a buffer area, actually, right. along the zone, uh, along the trail uh, the entire way, where the way things are done, obviously, are done with the trail in mind first and foremost. So the trail has never been in danger uh, from any kind of a forest practices. Yeah. I know uh, you, uh, from being on the board, have a commitment to classic skiing. Um, and I think this year, what the uh, 27K classic uh, trail was finished and had their first race. Um, can you tell us about the development of that and, and your own interest in classic skiing? Sure, sure, of course. As you know, uh, yes, uh, well, the two, the two styles of skiing have kind of, they've come, how should I say, first it was classical, of course, there was no skating. There was a tremendous co- controversy early on um, for a while whether skating will be even allowed in some of the races, including the, you know, the World Open and so on and so forth. Um, eventually, the skating technique is basically faster. All things being equal, it's faster. So people started picking up on that because everybody was going after whether you're going to win or not. Uh, everybody wanted to have as fast a time as possible. It is a race after all. So skating just gradually became the technique. Well, I myself switched to skating. Just I was after you know, fast times like anybody else, and I think, I forget when it was, maybe 15, 16, 20 Birkis we did, maybe first 15 uh, was all classical, and I know I think I was skating in 84, 83, 84, and from there on. So you were one of the early adapters? Oh, yeah, yeah. immediate. I was one of the earliest who, as soon as the skating was available, I I mean, the technique was kind of uh, used and shown on a world uh, scale, you know, uh, in Europe particularly, yeah, we saw that right away, and we started skating, uh, and it grew from there. Um, all right, so then for a while, of course, we didn't pay any attention to classical, even though we always put a track. The Berkey always, the Berkey race always had a track or two along the side. So if someone wanted to classical, they did. But with time, both in Europe and here, the interest in the classical was returning. 
And in fact, as you know, the Olympic or World Cup formats uh, include both styles That's completely. Right. They're, they're even uh, in every respect. So with that, we felt that we really should upgrade the opportunity and experience for classical skier in our Berkey Trail as well. And first, we started grooming for with the track better, perhaps, than in earlier years. But soon, we started a debate at Berkey Board, the Berkey Foundation, that something more should be done. And we came upon this uh, solution that we would build a parallel somewhat parallel trail, at least partway, and we did so. As we got the funding, we first built the track like that up to nine kilometers, then the following year up to what we call the high point last year, 13 point some kilometers, mm -hmm. and finally this year all the way to double O, which is roughly 26 kilometers of purely classical trail, beautiful trail. Uh, I don't know if you have skied it yet. Uh, no, I haven't been on the extended piece. I, I, I am going to, we come up for the whole week, so when we go up there, we're going to definitely go out, and we always do classic skiing as well as skating. Uh, are you going to be doing uh, the Berkey classical or skating? Skating. skating. Yeah, I still, <laughs> still skate. So are, okay. you, are you actually doing classic this year? I am doing classic. I have been doing classical Berkey since uh, 02. No. Uh, yeah, it so happened in all two. I decided to do the Norwegian Birkeminer, which of course is classical. And that year I trained entirely classical, <laughs> and I did the Norwegian Birke. Liked it a lot. Came back, and I have never gone back to skating since, for the Birke that is anyway. Wow. Uh, and in the recent years, I have to admit I have not been on skate skis. I don't think for two or three years. I I still like skating, but somehow. I have opportunities, um, especially up around Cable. We have so many trails that I, I always wind up on my classical skis. So I'm committed to classical nowadays. Excellent. The, um, uh, the Berkey Foundation actually has, uh, I mean, the, the Berkey race, there's uh, classic and skating, and there's awards for both, too. I notice mm -hmm. when what year did that start with the c on the bib as as a classic designation is that just well, you know like... i the c on the bib i believe is really recent last year, year yeah, i remember i remember it last year and it might have yeah. been the year before too My, yes i can even tell you i believe yeah. last year was the first time we got a c on it prior to that uh, only in the results you would get a little c in a tiny column showing you that a person did it classical we still do that uh, when the results are published unfortunately uh, we haven't separated the two events we're working on it it would be it would make sense to simply list the classical division separately like all other races do uh, they're really not compatible when you just mix uh, skate and classic you know just go uh, increasing times uh, and line up people that way, but uh, even even if you put in little C's showing that someone is doing classical, it's uh, it does not have the same doesn't convey the same information as reporting it separately. So we're working on it. I hope that we will report them. Right. Yeah. It, it would be hard because you typically yeah. would have run them separately. We're gonna yeah, yeah. be up at and, the uh, uh, North American Vaza in Traverse City, sure. and they have a one day is classic and one day is um, skating, so it, it would be hard. I don't know if you saw it. I was, um, saw on the uh, internet there was a gentleman, see, where is he from? From Franklin. Uh, he's a he's a birch legger, but uh, was, has completed 32 Berkeys 
and uh, his article was, uh, the, the title of his Birchlegger says, American Birkebinder rules cramp his, in parens, freestyle. Uh, and what he's saying is that, and, and you probably remember this when skating was first uh, invented, really by Bill uh, Koch, um, it was kind of a marathon skate. He would kind of do classic yeah. and then go to skate. Oh, sure. And yeah. I, I think uh, I think it's Alan Stenmark is the name of the person saying, well, I should be able to do both because I guess as the rules go, if they see you go into a skate thing, then you get disqualified. So uh, it was an interesting... Yeah, those uh, well, those days are long, long over. Yeah, it was a time when you could do uh, freestyle was exactly that. Uh, you could, yeah, you, one ski would be in the track, and then you were kind of pedaling along with the other scooter style. That's really way back in the earliest days. I mean, the, the classical style was established already way back. I'm I'm guessing '83 or something like that. And you know, the techniques that everybody understands now, the V1, V2, the V2 alternate, and all that kind of thing. This have evolved. And this, uh, these are well-developed uh, techniques today. And there's no, I mean, the two races are as, I mean, as, as separate uh, in, any, in every way as, let's say, swimming styles. Breaststroke stroke is one thing and freestyle is another and butterfly is another and so on. Uh, so these are two entirely independent and different styles. And um, in a particular, you can't mix them in the race anymore. I know yeah. some people would still like to do that. Yeah, I think it's even with the waxing too. It's so hard. Yeah, it's, it, it's uh, a different ski, different wax. It's right. it's, you, you have to choose one or the other. Uh, but fortunately, I mean, you you have this beautiful opportunity. You can do it either way. Right. You mentioned that you do a lot of training, uh, running, and so forth. Are you still doing running in the off season, or are you? I don't run. You know that uh, some of us. Uh, well. You hang around long enough, you get one kind or another body problem. <laughs> so right. my, my lower back has been giving me some grief over the years. Uh, it's better now, but uh, I stopped running. I still hike or uh, stride on trails with ski poles, you know, and go up and down the hills. Uh, that still works for me. Uh, roller skiing works and mountain biking and regular biking. So I do those things in moderation. Um, you know, I try to bike several times a week uh, like that, but I don't have a program where you're doing you know intervals you know and speed and strength training and you name it uh i no longer do any of that i simply try to keep active enough uh, so that i can uh, enjoy uh, skiing a long distance which i do yeah that's that's great yeah i had the same thing i think it is age i used to run all the time and and, and i agree completely with you that the berkey because you just can't go up there and think that you're going to do that you have to stay in shape all year so it is a wonderful motivator and I used to run all the time and I ended up tearing my medial meniscus in a in a, actually a road race half marathon and so I switched over to biking and I actually I wish I'd have switched over uh, years ago I found um, just a, a wonderful community in, in biking in the off season of course me living in Kansas, it's kind of what you'd consider the off-season all the time, because I don't, uh, the only skis I get on are my uh, roller skis. So, uh, looking forward to this year, it's, it seems from talking to you, it's almost the same anticipation as anybody, even, you know, that's doing it their first time, or now the... Um, yes, you know. Uh, I, you know, I, I have to tell you this, when it comes to anticipation and uh, everything goes with it, you cannot shake the nervousness of it. In other words, that, that kind of excitement thing. We're all really hyped 
for the Berkey. And I think what it is, it's the numbers, and it is getting there. It's getting to the starting line and getting yes. all the things lined up. <laughs> yeah. uh, I am, in that regard, probably no better than a novice. At our cabin, we usually have other people staying over with us. We're all doing maybe five, six of us are doing the Berkey. The whole excitement and nervousness the day before to eat properly or try to, to wax your skis, get yes. your clothing figured out because yeah. you don't know exactly what the weather is going to be like or you try to you follow the predictions and forecasts. And this business of getting up in the morning early, getting out of bed, and uh, everything that it takes to get there to this excitement, it just, I can't shake that. That gets to me every time, and it's going to do the same thing this year. Even though I have absolutely nothing to prove, not even anything to worry about. All I have to do is show up there and ski from uh, Cable to Hayward, and I've done my thing. And uh, as a founder, uh, well, all of us founders have always had a preferential start anyway. We start right up front, uh, right behind the elite wave simultaneously with yes. them, but line up behind them, you know. Yes. So in other words, even that is uh, nothing to worry about as far as getting to the starting line, but it's still the whole ordeal of dealing with the weather, with the traffic, with getting there. Until you're on the starting line, you're, you're dealing with, uh, we, we all pretty much deal with the same thing. Yeah. It's and, a, that's, it's it's a, and, and I think, you know, with waxing, uh, especially with classical, I think it's a, you know a lot. Seems to be harder to hit that wax, you know, just right um, comparatively. Yep, yep. It, it is, it is. You you wouldn't believe it. Even uh, you you would think under ideal snow conditions and with all the waxes available nowadays, you still may not hit it just right. Like last year was that kind of year. I mean, no excuse whatsoever. You should have excellent kick and all that. And my skis uh, simply were subpar. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they just did not climb the way you should, and then you stop and you rewax. But uh, you know, it's uh, it's not what it should be when you do it that way. So uh, you uh, mm -hmm. skied in a Norwegian uh, Birkebeiner. Have you done other World Loppet races? I have done a few. I have done a Norwegian one, of course. I have done the Vasa Loppet in Sweden, which mm -hmm. is the longest in the world. So I want to do that, 90k. Mm -hmm. I have done uh, the Dolomitenlauf in Austria. And uh, Marshallanga in Italy, wow. the two of them I did last year. So. Uh, and I would like to do a few more. Uh, that, that's, got, decided, that's got to be an experience too. To I it, mean, it is. Yeah. It, it it is. Uh, it is. Each of these is completely different. Uh, you can't compare, or you can contrast them if you like, but uh, not two are anywhere near alike. There's something unique about each one of them, and and just for that alone, uh, it's worth. Uh, to do them if you get a chance. Right. Any of these events are really great. Um, you said you, ha you have a cabin up there. How long have you um, uh, had a cabin? Is it near the Berkey Trail? Can you? Well, it's uh, we can't walk to it. It's on the opposite side of the river. We are just uh, south of the airport, right across Namakagan River. Oh, okay. It's on the little knoll on the south side of the river. We're looking, we're looking right at Mount Telemark from it. We, we bought a land, uh, what, uh, nine years ago and build this log style cabin, had it built uh, a couple years later. We've been in it now, I will say, what, six, seven years. Um, so, you know, uh, we still have to get in the car to drive to Telemark, uh, to trail uh, right. heads and so on, but no big deal. I'm there in, you know, five minutes. So do you do you uh, spend a lot of time up at the cabin? Sure. Yeah. We, we live in Eau Claire here. That's only a two-hour drive, two cable, 
And we as a family go there on as many weekends as we can, but often we extend, you know, make long weekends, um, three, four days, depending on who's doing what. And there are other event situations where we can be a bit longer. So I've, and being on a Berkey board, we had meetings every month, so I use that excuse every time to stay another day or two at the cabin and do whatever is uh, the season provides at the time, you know, mountain biking or skiing. Mm-hmm. So yes, we, we, we're there a lot. John, you've, uh, you're on second term on the uh, American Birkebiner Ski Foundation. Tell us about Board. that. What's the purpose of the foundation? When was it formed? Well, the foundation, uh, that's obviously the basis. Uh, that's the thing that runs the Birkebiner. Right. Uh, and it all started, uh, this may not be clear to all the folks, although I think people are pretty familiar with when Tony Wise started this event, it was operated by him. I mean, he was his company, and basically he was he was Mr. Birkebiner. He did everything that Birke was. Well, um, some 15 years into the event, uh, things at Telemark were starting to go sour financially, and uh, as most people know, uh, there were problems, and he went into bankruptcy, and he lost... Uh, the properties up there, and at that time, there was a great danger. I mean, the Birke race could have disappeared, just like that, with Tony. And quickly, in order, by that time, of course, people in the area up there realized what an important economic asset this was to the area. They wanted to preserve the Birke event at all costs. So one way to do it was to form a foundation that would actually take over the running of the Birke Binder. Uh, it was a, a legal uh, matter and a decision and a process. I wasn't involved in that early on, but I believe it started, I'm guessing now, maybe in, oh, 86, 7, thereabouts. Um, but it has grown and matured uh, into really uh, what I think is a very solid organization that runs the Birky. Of course, we have, we have paid staff, too. We have executive director right. and uh, and Ned, whom you know, mm-hmm. and a number of people, and a nice building, and of course we have people who are doing the day-to-day work and all this, but the Berkey, basically the Berkey board, like any board, is the guiding, is the body that oversees really the the big issues, the big thing about what Berkey is and how it, uh, uh, how it will. How often does itself. the board meet? We meet once a month, year-round. Wow. And then besides that, there are additional committees that we form uh, for special purposes, and we serve on those and also volunteer individually. But the board itself meets once a month, and, and uh, every second Monday of the month. Now, had, had you been on the board before, John, or is it no, this this, this is my second term. I was, yeah. uh, I was, uh, I was elected uh, three years ago, four years ago now. And these are three-year terms, so I'm on my second term now. Right, I saw your uh, candidate piece that's yeah, off the, yeah. Each, the website. Yeah. yeah, after three years, if you run again, you're supposed to submit your candidacy and join join the rest of them. Anyone who wants to run for the board uh, has to go through the same steps. So, yeah, so my, my documentation is there available for people to see. But the foundation, of course... Um, they're members of American Birkebiner Foundation. We have several hundred, I unfortunately can't tell, give you the number at the moment, of people who simply uh, form this uh, organization, and we are simply the governing board of it. Mm-hmm. 
and and the purpose is really essentially to run this race. And then, and then you oversee the the paid staff too. Obviously, oh, sure. that's who yeah, they report sure. to. Yeah, yeah, the board hires uh, the director. Right. Uh, director hires your own staff, but the board oversees uh, right. the selection of directorship. Well, well, tell us about uh, you. You came up with the idea for the Birch Leggings Club. I mean, how did that come about? Um, why uh-huh. were, were there other people involved in the development of the club? Well, this is kind of a long history, Matt, as well. It was something like this. Um, first of all, I have to mention, of course, you hear the Beardy founders. Uh, Tony Wise designated a group of us who have been with him for from the beginning up to the first 10 years, uh, thereabouts, even earlier. And he, he simply came up with the term the Berkey founders, even though we didn't found the Berkey, of course, we're the ones who were skiing it uh, in early times. He was the founder. But uh, he gave us this honorary title, and we had special bids right from, I mean, after, I think, five Berkeys or something, they started having founder bids. And But there were a very small number of us, 12 or so, after the first years, who came back and were really founders. Uh, we... Each time we would get considerable recognition, you know, so we would get a five-year award, then we'd get a 10-year trophies and things like that, and, and so forth, which is nice. But I came to realize, some of us, uh, we started talking about this, by the time we were doing, you know, 20 of these, there were other people, many of them, who were just as dedicated. They weren't there uh, at its origin, but had now skied as many, you know, 20 Berkeys and so on. So we thought it would be a good idea to make something of it, to come up with, a, with some kind of a organization, club, whatever, what have you, that would do several things. Uh, number one, of course, uh, recognize these people who are really, obviously, <laughs> dedicated Birchie skiers coming back like this year after year, even if not consecutively. But also, since these numbers were now increasing, I felt that if we organized in some way, we could as collectively contribute towards uh, the growth of the Berkey, the maintenance of the Berkey event, uh, uh, try to help to maintain the traditions that the Berkey really has sort of established and so forth. And uh, that was the basic idea. And early on, uh, when we started with this, it was very hard to to move anywhere with the, with the whole idea because other than the founders, Let's say after we did 20 years, there were what uh, maybe half a dozen founders were still doing it. But the following year, there were only four people who would have done 20. And the year later, there were another maybe eight or so. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? So the num- numbers were not up there. So it was hard to get a critical mass to actually make a difference. But slowly but surely, we grew like this year by year, and we had informal meetings for several years early on. Uh, I kind of kept things going, and finally we we managed to get a large enough number that once we we had a we decided to have this awards breakfast, which we now still have annual thing. I forget which annual it will be anymore, <laughs> but the first one was uh, at the country and in suites in um, in Hayward. We had a nice representation, perhaps 60, 70 people. We have a nice photograph of that, and that kind of launched things. Um, we, of course, uh, we had to do a number of things. Uh, we had to create an award. We wanted to have a nice award for 
for birchlegging, the people who will be, become birchleggers 20 years. Uh, so we just found volunteers amongst ourselves uh, who would do some of these things. So the wife of one of our uh, early, uh, one of our skiers, he's not a founder, but has been with us for many, many years, 30 plus, Bill Coswell. His wife, Jeannie, uh, is an artist, and she volunteered to design us a nice logo, which we now have. And that logo, of course, was incorporated into the award that we produced, also through mainly through Coswell's uh, connections and uh, ideas. And so we grew. And But, you know, what I have to point out, the Birch Flaggings uh, Club, we just call it informally that, we're not incorporated or anything, but they're not really uh, a part of the Berkey board. The Berkey board doesn't run it. The uh, Berkey office doesn't run it. We are kind of functioning sort of peripherally here, but uh, obviously with, we had the same goals, uh, which is to maintain the quality of this race. And uh, you will be hearing more from us anyway. In fact, you will be involved with your web page here. Uh, we have some great ideas for the Birchleggers to contribute in some meaningful way uh, towards the, uh, you know, the growth uh, and success of the event. That's great. I mean, I, I can certainly speak from my own experience that, you know, that goal of that 20 years was always there. I remember, you know, the 15, 16, and, you know, I'd, uh, I have personally gone up with the, you know, same folks every year. Um, and, you know, we just always had that as the goal. So it's been, uh, it, it did, it created incentive. And, uh, you know, I think after the first year, I wanted to come back anyhow but it was it's a it's a nice uh, goal to get to that uh, 20 year and then have that special bib in fact I've got uh, I've done now 21 so one is hanging in my home office and one is hanging in my office so uh, the um, yeah. uh, this year too isn't uh, or did they start last year at 30 at 30 years now you're gonna have a, a different colored bib Yes, you know, that's right. And these things grow, of course. We had 20 that we felt pretty good. We established something. We had this nice award for 20, but pretty soon it was 25, and then it was 28, and before <laughs> you know it, it was 30. And within the Birchleggings organization, we have a simple little plaque that we uh, produce for everybody who gets a 30th. And also, we, we did something with the bibs. So over the years already, we have come up, first of all, we had these stickers that you put on, so uh, when you... You know, when, when everybody just had a purple and gold bid, that did imply, well, it showed everyone that you're doing 20 at least. But pretty soon, some were doing 30 mm -hmm. uh, and everything in between. So we did put stickers on it to kind of show that off. Um, but as of last year, uh, since we, we did cross 30 already, uh, we came up with an idea to, to have a bib, uh, a Brooks bib that would reflect that. And it is a reverse colors, actually. So instead of being purple, it's gold with purple lettering, uh, and, and it says Birchlings on it, and that will mean, uh, you know, 30 plus. Uh, and so those are available now, and we'll probably come up with some other ideas uh, in, in, in the future. You know, I, I, I do have to add, as you alluded to, uh, I notice everybody who is about to become a Birchlegger is very excited about it. They love to wear their Birchlings bib. It means something to them. And when we gather at our awards uh, breakfast uh, every every year, the atmosphere there is unbelievable. You can see that people really do feel 
uh, a common sort of they have a, a lot of a lot in common here, obviously, and uh, simply have a great time. If nothing else, that morning uh, where we you know celebrate, chat a little bit, and honor the ones that become new Bushleggers and and so forth. Uh, but the potential is there. We haven't yet tapped the potential of the Birchlagen group, which this year will exceed 800. Uh, we're expecting perhaps 100 or so this year that might become the 20 years, which would push us well over 800 number. And with that in mind, as I say, we have some plans here that we will unveil shortly uh, uh, where we could engage this really, the energy that we have in this uh, group and really make uh, a meaningful contribution uh, to the whole event. That's wonderful. The and I know uh, too, and it's it's been an honor, you know, since I in my twentieth, you had put out a call to you know someone to help out with the website, and I've got experience doing that, so it's been fun uh, helping you uh, get that message out that we have a permanent place to put things and uh, those of you that you know haven't been on there's a lot of uh, picture history we've tried to put some of the old uh, newsletters on now too and uh, we also are using you know some of the newer things like Facebook and and Twitter to uh, put things in fact John and I just friended each other on Facebook today so yeah and uh, I have said we've set up a Facebook uh, group um, there so and and there's uh, Facebook, I know, has an American Berkebinder site. I know there's a, several members. I know you, John, were a member of that, too. So, um, you know, there's newer and newer ways to, to get information out. Um, the uh, Yes, Ed, let me, let me just add to that. As I said, you know, we, we knew for several years that we need a, a web page, obviously, and we were looking for just someone like you. So you came along just in time, and uh, as I said, we, we are really, really thrilled that you had developed that uh, web page. So anyone now can uh, tap into it and find out all sorts of things. We have a beautiful meaning, uh, medium here for communicating uh, among ourselves. Um, that, that's definitely, that should help us a lot in the future as well. I mean, it is an electronic world now, cyber world. Simply sending letters around uh, anymore is, is simply not a solution anymore. And especially when the numbers um, grow as they have, it was one thing to mail a newsletter once or twice a year to 20, 30, 40, 50 people. But, you know, 700, 800, and so forth, we can't do this continuously. And, yes, the web page uh, is, is, is really a tremendous addition, and we're, we're very grateful that you are interested enough uh, in, in maintaining this thing and developing it. Great. It's, a, it's a great job. No, I'm, I'm happy to help. And the uh, uh, Dave just sent me the uh, you know listing of the new 2009 uh, folks that are going to be coming, uh, Birch Leggers, and that was just posted up. So uh, if great. you haven't yeah. seen that, uh, you know you get your name there. The uh, you said the annual awards banquet is going to be held at the Lumberjack Steakhouse on Sunday morning, the 20 February 22nd. Is that right? Yes, right after the Berkey, yeah. Sunday, I believe it's 22nd, the Sunday after Berkey, yes, at 9 o'clock. Right. We usually go to about 11 o'clock or so, and uh, people who have attended really will tell you they have a great time. We have good breakfast, buffet style, of course, uh, and uh, then simply we induct the new folks who have skied the 20. Not all of them show up, of course, but uh, we encourage people to come. Uh, even if they're not uh, 
becoming members this year. Uh, they, of course, invited any Birchlager is invited. We usually have a capacity for some somewhere around, I believe. We have a capacity of 250 or 300 people even. Uh, so then we pretty much fill up. So yeah, it's, I, it's a great time. You, you do a wonderful job with, uh, job with that, John, and it's um, the uh, food is great, um, and it's just a lot of fun. And I, I know sometimes it's hard for people that are, you know, especially if they're flying in from other places like me, but I make arrangements so that I don't leave until Sunday night because it's, uh, it's just a great event. So any birch leggers out there that uh, are listening, you know, please uh, make your arrangements to, to come. Well, John, I know you've got to get running, and I, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time uh, to uh, talk on the podcast, and um, uh, I look forward to seeing you here shortly. So when are you heading heading up for the Berkey? Uh, going up? Well, we for the Berkey week, we usually, we're up there most of the week, at least Wednesday or maybe even Tuesday, we're up there already, and for the rest of the week, uh, and of course, between now and then, uh, with the Berkey board activities, will be I'll be up and around quite a bit, and yes, I'm I'm looking forward to the same thing again. I can't believe that actually the year has rolled around already <laughs> since we had such a fabulous time last last time you were there, and uh, well, uh, before we know it, we'll be there again. Right, it's I, I uh, mark it on my calendar, and I it's I we do the same thing. We come up for the whole week and just have a have a blast. So there's so many neat things to do, great restaurants to go to and just have fun. But I, I think like you, it's that nervous energy. Um, yep. cause I, I kind of tend to go up with, uh, a group of uh, guys. There's about 15 and I've met people from every city I've lived in. I'm, you know, grew up in Michigan, um, but have lived in Northern Virginia, North Carolina, now in Kansas and everywhere I've been, I've run into Berkey skiers and have kept that friendship and we get together uh, with them each year so it's uh it's just a, a a fun week but uh we usually sit around you know the main topics of conversation that i tell my wife are you know wax and weather you know what, yeah. what wax we're going to use exactly. and what's the weather and the only thing that's consistent is the weather always changes you know by the time Absolutely. the race comes and so. that's what keeps us on our toes <laughs> that's right so well john thank you so much for being part of the podcast uh I know I learned a lot about the the Berkey, and I'm sure our listeners have too. So thank you for taking the time, and we'll see you at the Berkey. Very good, Ed. Thank you for downloading Episode 2 of Berkey Web today, and I do hope that you will subscribe to our podcast so that you will not miss any future episodes. If this is the first podcast that you've listened to, our past episodes are available on the Berkey Web website. We have a lot of interesting news and interviews that we have planned before, during, and after the Berkey, so please come back. Take care, and thanks, Snow.